Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with the unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, the class of 2020. Today, we talked to Nicole Burlingame, class of 2011, psychotherapist and doctor of psychology candidate at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. Nicole will share how she made a strong pivot in college that directed her towards a career in helping others in mental health. Joining us today is Nicole Berlingame from the class of 2011. Nicole, tell us what you do. Um, well, right now I am working uh, as a family teacher at Mooseheart uh, Child City and School over near Batavia. Um, but I am also still in school full-time, 10 years after I graduated, um, pursuing my doctorate in clinical psychology. How did you know that you were interested in psychology and that was the, the kind of path that you wanted to go towards? What, what, how did you begin that after high school? Or maybe it started in high school. Um, neither. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, psychology in high school was really fun because I had um, the notorious Barb Lyman's as my psychology teacher in high school with her Freudian slippers um, that were just absolutely marvelous. Um, so I kind of got my feet wet and I was like, okay, cool. But I still was very, very convinced that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, everyone had always told me to do it. I was really argumentative and, you know, feisty. So I was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, I actually started college studying history and um, cause I thought, you know, I really loved history in high school. I mean, Mr. McKenna was my history teacher for a lot of high school who doesn't love history when Mr. McKenna is your teacher. Um, but in college, it was awful. Uh, I couldn't get my mind around it. I actually ended up um, failing a lot of my classes that were history classes. And a friend of mine was like, hey, maybe you should like take some classes that you're actually interested in. And uh, at the time of this conversation, I was about two years into my mental health journey. And so I was like, well, you know, I'll take abnormal psych and I'll take some philosophy classes because why not? And I was like, oh, this is fun. Um, and I got to a point where I really loved going to classes. I didn't dread homework. Uh, I was interested in what I was learning. So like it felt more happy overall. And I just kind of stuck with philosophy as my major. I made psychology my minor. And I got like straight A's and B's ever since. And I was like, this is amazing. And I'd always known that I was like really, really good at helping people. Um, and I was like, you know what? Therapists help people. Therapists help people a lot. Uh, so I decided to get my master's. And um, it's kind of just been psychology, counseling, therapy ever since like my junior year of college when I switched majors. Do you remember what, like the, what was the, your favorite series of psychology tests maybe that you did in your undergrad that you're like, Ooh, I like this. I want more. I want to know more about this. Do you remember what that was? Oh yeah. Um, my favorite psychological test. Um, there is actually a weird, like not as official free version online, but it's called the Myers-Briggs personality type inventory. And that assessment changed my entire life. Because it allowed me to see like, hey, you're not crazy. This is just your personality type and it's okay. And I was like, oh, 
that's cool. Um, and that got me even more into it. So then you head off to grad school. What were, what was some of the, the coursework like, uh, in your, in your grad program? Um, I was actually really surprised by the coursework in my grad program because everyone says how graduate school is so much harder than just getting a bachelor's. And I'm like, mm, but is it? Because there was a lot more reading. There was a lot more reading. But the thing is, my program, it was set up in such an amazing way where we only had classes once a week. Um, they were on the same night. And we only had two classes per term. Now, granted, it went year round, so whatever. But it was still really great because the coursework, the classes were super manageable compared to my bachelor's. Um, and the classes were things like different theories of psychology, um, how to diagnose different disorders or mental illnesses, how to treat different disorders and mental illnesses, um, gross, disgusting things like statistics and research methods and um, just, and then there were some fun things, you know, like studying how different um, drugs affect the brain, you know, psychotropic drugs that you would potentially prescribe um, and how that kind of stuff works, how to treat addictions, how to work with families, how to work with couples, how to work with kids, how to work with groups, um, all of the things that a therapist could ever come across, it was there. So when you were in the in grad school did you begin to narrow the type of population that you wanted to work with or the type of client or patient you wanted to work with you like i want to work with this particular group where how did that kind of decision or, or did that decision process begin in grad school yeah it for sure began in grad school um it has since evolved but i mean everything evolves with time um, I originally was like, please don't make me work with children. Please. No, no, no. Don't want to work with kids. Because like 90% of the time, if you're working with a child, like under the age of eight, 90% of the time, the problem is actually the parents, but you can't tell the parents that. Mm. So I was like, don't, don't make me work with kids. Then I started working with kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, these little things are so cool. <laughs> um, cause they're, they're still developing and they're still learning and everything is awesome. And I'm like, yes, I like this. Um, I learned towards the end of my master's experience that I am really, really good in crisis situations. And I'm really good with dealing with trauma, um, which is not something that I ever expected from myself but it kind of turned that way. And now that's kind of where I'm focusing. I think the only population that I have decided that I don't want to work with as of now, at least, um, would be addictions populations. Um, but that's more because it's kind of a personal trigger for me. I mean, um, when I was in the middle of my master's program, my biological father actually passed away because of an overdose and I had not yet gotten the opportunity to meet him in person. So I'm kind of salty about that. Um, and I found that addictions kind of just personally triggers me. So I just stay away from it because I know that I'm not going to be the best version of myself in that situation to help those people that need it. So it, it has evolved so much. 
It's, it's interesting. Do you think that your training in psychology gave you the type of boundary to know that I know that I'm, I can't pursue this because I wouldn't be, you know, to use the sports metaphor, my A game when dealing with that particular type of client or patient? Oh yeah, 100%. That's something that they, they really, really emphasize, um, especially in a master's program, even more so in my doctoral program, where it's like, hey, you need to make sure that you're on your A game. So we need to figure out what your boundaries are. We need to figure out what your triggers are. There is a lot of therapy involved in learning how to do therapy. You were, you were talking about how you settled into knowing that you, you really enjoyed working with children, but then, and then, and more so that you were able to have a, a type of confidence in, in crisis um, therapy. Was, it, was that the right way to express a crisis therapy or treatment? Yeah. How do you know that you're making progress or traction when you're working with uh, your patients or clients, because, you know, different to other people that, cause you're healing and you're, you're, you're helping people. If I put a splint on a sprained thumb, I, I can see that that thumb gets better over time. What are the ways in which you're able to see the type of growth and um, repair when you're working with your patients and clients? Um, it kind of, it depends on the client. Um, it depends on what they're going through. But um, a lot of times uh, I would notice it in like those little shimmering moments, like that they would have like these aha moments where like the light bulb turns on. They're like, oh my gosh, like I get it. I understand why this is happening. Or um, in some clients, it's just, hey, I went three days in a row without crying. Or they're able to discuss a situation without breaking down. Or they're able to let their walls down and really let you in to experience what they're experiencing with them. Um, with kids, it's more often like, oh my gosh, did you see that? He just totally shared without like mm. us telling him to share. Um, so with children, it's, it's smaller scale, but it has, in my opinion, a bigger impact um, because when you're working with kids that are traumatized, their walls are often up so high and they're so scared of virtually everything, honestly. And when they do these little acts of kindness or these little positive social skills in any way, you're like, oh my gosh, like they did it. They did it. They're getting it. They're learning. And that, that's how you know. So it really depends on the person. It depends on what they're going through. But it's it's a beautiful thing when it happens. If I could kind of come back to the idea of like with crisis, when, when you're um, – for most people, this is not something that we are probably – able to process well because of maybe fight or flight or I think I, I came across this new expression is the idea of Maslow before bloom right where you have to feel safe and, and all that but as the adult and the therapist in this particular role how are you able to kind of keep these things separate because you're dealing with your clients and patients in a way where they're in an incredible moment of pain and suffering with crisis, how do you, how, how do you kind of keep them separate? So it's not something that you, um, experience yourself when you're 
leaving the session? Because I would imagine it's got to be very heavy and you come across some very heartbreaking things to most people to, to, um, to listen to and work through. How, how are you able to keep these things separate? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of really heavy things that come into play. Um, and I think that personally, you know, the way I am able to keep things separate is just to recognize that, you know, this isn't about me. This is about them. And this is their life. This is their experience. They are the experts in their own life. Hmm. And I am just here to help them be an expert on managing their own life. Um, I can't take away the crisis. I can't take away the pain. I can't do any of that. All I can do is listen and be that safe space and that safe person and then teach them the tools for them to not have to experience all of that pain all of the time. Um, so keeping that kind of stuff separate is really just a matter of reminding that this isn't about me. This has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with my life. I am just here as kind of like a lighthouse. I'm just here to keep them safe. I'm just here to teach them tools. I'm just here to be the person who's going to listen without judgment. Cause most people don't have that in their regular everyday lives. Um, and that's just me. After grad school, or maybe it was during uh, grad school, you did some work at Maryville. And I was wondering if you can maybe describe what Maryville is and then then maybe talk about if there's a similarity to what Maryville is to uh, what you do at Mooseheart. And what is Mooseheart for those that don't know? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did work at Maryville for the last year of my master's degree. Um, I was working on their campus that is in Bartlett. And um, I was working in their teenage moms program at the time. Um, Maryville is so epic in so many ways um, that it's kind of hard to explain. Some of the kids there um, are wards of the state, so they do not have a guardian. Um, their guardian is the state of Illinois. Um, some of the kids are orphaned, some were given up, but then we also have like a school program where they're just kids that have mental illness or, you know, different types of disabilities or delays and they can go to school there. Um, I was in, you know, a portion, like I said, with the teen moms. So all of the girls that I worked with were, you know, teen moms. Um, they were all wards of the state. So I was actually their acting guardian while they were living there. Um, it is a residential facility. Um, this particular program, they did have various different mental illnesses. Um, some of them came to the program while they were still pregnant. Some of them had their children with them. Some of them were trying to learn parenting skills to get their children back into their custody. Um, and that is really where I got my first hands-on taste of crisis because all of the girls at that time that I worked there had also been to jail and they were all physically aggressive. Um, so there were fights all the time um, that I would have to get in the middle of and intervene um, and deal with. So that's where I got my first taste of crisis. Um, 
Can, can no. I ask a quick follow-up question with that? Yeah. Um, what was like a type of de-escalation move or strategy that you would use? Because I would imagine, uh, you know, they're coming from a place of, 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 of real anger and pain and confusion at that point. How, how did you, what would be a de-escalation strategy that you would use in a moment like that? Um, if they were actually going at it, like fighting physically, there's not a whole lot we can do already. (laughs) Um, except that, I mean, there is a specific type of, um, intervention techniques that, you know, we're all trained in. It's called CPI, which I think is crisis prevention intervention could be wrong on that. Not sure. Um, but you know, there are different types of therapeutic holds, which are essentially a restraint, Mm. um, that we can put them in at that point. If we can catch it before it gets to that point, there are different um, things we can do, like for starters, separating the two that are about to fight. Um, Also like different grounding techniques just to kind of bring them back down into like actual reality. Um, Cause I mean, we all know that teenagers in general are highly emotional creatures. Mm. Um, (laughs) They're real fun. And so when we're, when we're able to kind of get them back down into reality, that helps a lot. So I'm sorry, I, I had interrupted you because I was, that was, my, my mind was really interested in that part. I, th- I think we were about to make the connection to then uh, your work at, I think, uh, Moose Heart. Heart. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Moose Heart is, um, it does have some similarities with Maryville, but not, a lot, a lot. Um, Moose Heart is a residential facility as well. However, it is a residential care facility. So not our, our kids don't have diagnosed mental illness issues. Um, our kids, I would say probably about 90% of them. Um, and again, could be wrong because I don't know all of them. I just know 75% of them. Um, have come to us because for whatever reason, their guardians cannot properly take care of them. Um, So it could be a financial thing. It could be that the guardians are grandma and grandpa and these kids are like four and five and grandma and grandpa just cannot keep up. Um, Which, yeah, duh. (laughs) Like, Mm. I don't know many grandparents who can keep up with a four and five-year-old full-time. Some of our kids are actually sent to Mooseheart as a boarding school option and their guardians and their parents and the rest of their family live in different parts of Africa, which to me is quite exciting. Um, but we have a great mix of kids. Um, unfortunately, some of our children have been through situations of significant abuse or neglect. Um, and some of them have not experienced any type of abuse or neglect ever in their life. But even just being sent to a place to live and go to school and all of those things away from your family can kind of be a form of trauma. So in a way, they all kind of experience different levels of it. Um, some aren't affected by it at all. Some think it's the greatest place ever. Others are your typical kids who are like, you want me to follow rules? What? No. Um but it's a really great mixture. All of the kids are phenomenal. All of my coworkers are amazing. The organization does so much to help these kids and get them set up for success in like every way. Um, it is really amazing. 
So it's a really great thing to be a part of. Um, like I said, these kids don't have diagnosed mental illnesses. So there, we don't have as many issues that we had at Maryville. Actually, our most physically aggressive kids at Mooseheart currently, at least, are the toddlers. Um, and I mean, who doesn't know a toddler that's kind of a terrorist? Uh, my five-year-old, who's kind of a toddler, I, I think I get uh, a, a, a foot to the mouth. Like you know, she's just like on the couch, just not even paying attention. So yeah, it's it's uh, inadvertent or you know aggressive as well. So you're 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 also going for explain what's the official title of your next um, stage of, of your learning? Are you're going to be a doctor of psychiatry or psychotherapy? A doctor of, so it's a PsyD instead of a PhD, which just means that it's a doctor of psychology um, in clinical psychology. Okay. So what does that coursework uh, involve? It's a lot of the same stuff from my master's program, except from a completely different perspective. (laughs) So (laughs) instead of focusing so much on different like theories of therapy, like we don't really care about those. We care about, um, how you're going to come across a person accurately diagnose if there is anything to diagnose, um, what assessments you're going to do because most psychological assessments and testing type things can only be done by someone with a doctorate. Um, the type of tests and assessments that therapists can do at a master's level are very limited. Um, so we have to be trained on all of them. I have to be able to do IQ testing for adults, IQ testing for children. There's a whole different IQ test for toddlers. Don't know why, but whatever. Um, I have to know how to assess for different disorders like autism spectrum disorder, which has has its own assessment, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Like there are literally over 500 different assessments that I have to be able to figure out how to use. Um, we're not super duper trained on all of them. We're just really trained on like the big ones that are the most commonly used, but I have to know how to find which one that I'm going to need at any given time. And that in and of itself is stressful. As you say, that Um, seems like a really, an interesting, um, heuristic to be able to say, okay, I have this issue and then I have to find the test that captures the most of what I think I'm seeing and then begin to narrow down with a series of other tests. Would that be a way of describing it? Okay. Exactly. That's exactly it. So there, that's, that's the biggest part of it. Um, because obviously you can't even think about starting to treat a person unless you know what it is you're treating. Um, so also with the doctorate, we're looking more at severe mental illness. We're looking at severe disorders. Um, whereas with a master's level, you do see some severe mental health, mental illness, but you're really more focused on like the unfortunately ever popular depression, anxiety, ADHD, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, whereas with the doctorate, we're looking at like, Hey, who's got a personality disorder today? Yeah. Um, and those are way more popular and prevalent than people think. So it's a lot of tests. Yeah. So if you, and maybe these, this, this aligns with what you're doing anyway, but like, you know, I always like to ask, like, if there was one, uh, 
area of study. Like, so after you get your, your side, wait, how do you say it again? Your side, side D. So after you get your side D and, and, and you were able to write a magical grant and say like, now go research this or go deal with this. What do you think you would do with that? Um, that, that, blank check of uh, of being able to pursue the next thing after that what would that wh- where 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 do your interests lie um it's actually really funny that you ask that because right now we're all preparing on what we're going to write our dissertations on so um i if i had an unlimited budget and like it would probably take five to ten years to accomplish this um and like a lot more money um i would really like to look at how um, neurofeedback treatments, which are still considered very new, very novel, um, I would like to see how those types of treatments can affect um, post-traumatic stress disorder in military veterans that have traumatic brain injuries. That's really important. I can imagine how beneficial that would be. What, what of those experiments that you've seen that look promising, what does that look like? Um, so there are not many experiments that have been done with this. Um, but because neurofeedback, I mean, they just developed it in the eighties. So it is still very new. Most people don't even know that it exists. Um, the only reason I know about it is because, um, the last part of my master's, I was doing internship at, um, a private practice that offered neurofeedback treatments because it's a really great alternative to medication where there are no side effects and it's debatably actually more effective and more efficient. Um, And then I actually started going through neurofeedback treatments myself um, because shortly after high school, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and ADHD, which had I known before high school could have really helped with a lot of things. Um, but right. I, I felt the change in myself, so I can only assume that it would help with PTSD and veterans. I have come across a few research articles that seem really promising because it does retrain the brain to think and act properly. Um, cause a lot of times what you're seeing is like two parts of your brain just aren't talking to each other. Like, and that's where the problem is. So neurofeedback treatments get those two parts of your brain talking again, and then you can function properly like a, like a normal human, but without medication and all of those nasty side effects. Now, I, I can't let you go without asking you, um, you were, you, you majored in philosophy. So I have to ask this for uh, Mr. Caltagirone, our philosophy teacher. What were your, what was your favorite school of philosophy that you really enjoyed most when you were as an undergrad or continue to read uh, in terms of philosophy? What was, what was that? I love, love, love ancient philosophy in general. Um, I really love Plato. I really love you know, Plato's quoting of Socrates, because we know Socrates didn't write his own stuff. Um, I think my favorite thing that I still use to this day is probably just the Socratic method, uh, just asking questions to get people to their answers. And knowing that myself as a human, I don't know anything. And, you know, I'm pretty positive it was either Socrates or Plato, because you can't really tell the difference most of the time, one of them. 
said that true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. <laughs> and that is what I live by every day. And that, that keeps the blade sharp, you know, keep on asking the questions over and over again. And, you know, you know, that's that that quote that you just gave, you know, could be almost the same thing that I'm going to ask you next, which is at the end of the interview, I always ask, like, what are your pearls of wisdom for current wildcats for success? What do you think that is, Nicole? Oh, my gosh, I have so many. Um, I <laughs> did write off. down a few. <laughs> I, I did write down a few. Um the first one, do not be afraid of failure. Um, so many people, parents, teachers, whoever, you know, the authority figures are in your life, they put pressure on you to do well. Um, but they put the pressure on you because they can see your potential beyond what you can see right now. So don't be afraid to fail because who knows, you might be failing for the same reason I did. You weren't on the right path. If you're failing and failing and failing in college at history, maybe you shouldn't be studying history. Um, another one that I have is like, don't let anyone tell you that your college major or your um, technical school choices or whatever you're doing with your life, don't let anyone ever tell you that it's useless because it is useful and it is valid in its own way, whatever it may be. Um always keep an open mind because you never know what's going on. And kind of like I just said with the philosophy thing, the people who think that they are 100% correct all the time are usually the people that are really, really wrong. <laughs> so just always keep an open mind, always keep learning, keep breathing, love yourself. Everything will be okay in the end. If, and if, if it's not okay, it's not the end yet. Um, go to therapy. Like, just go to therapy. Everyone needs it. Whether or not you think you have a mental illness, whether you you think you're perfectly fine, if it's just the pressures of school, just go to therapy. Because having a third party who isn't necessarily like your best friend or your parent, they're going to be able to help you do what's in your best interest regardless of what's in theirs, because your best friend is always going to tell you, oh my gosh, go to the same college that I'm going to go to, even though like that college doesn't have anything for you except your best friend. Um, and I think the most important pearl of wisdom that I could give to anyone ever is to think for yourself, do your own research, ask people, like ask tons of different people their opinion on the same thing get the information that you need from reliable sources, sit down alone and think and like almost meditate on whatever it is you're trying to decide and then make a decision for yourself. Be your own person, think for yourself, make your own opinions, your own beliefs and don't just blindly follow what the rest of the world tells you to believe or tells you you should be. This has been so much fun. I can't wait to interview again when you are the doctor. So this is going to be fun in a couple of years when we get you on the other side of it as well. This is so great. Nicole, absolutely. thank you so much. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for reaching out. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music Podcasts and search We Go Vox.